Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host, and we have guest Joby Sofa Clark on this uh, this evening, and a very interesting person. I've heard him talk on a few other shows. Uh, he's got a lot of he's got a lot of theories. He he uses some other like on uh, the basis of some theories and has his own takes on them. It's pretty interesting. I uh, hope you enjoy him as a guest. Uh, this week, we have a blog by Charles Lear. It's part two, a Brazilian UFO hotspot and a general. So check that out. Again, those are made into uh, audio podcasts as well by Charles. And he does a great job researching. I hope you check that out. He's also uh, the author of The UFO Investigators. And that book's available on Amazon and all that. So a uh, little later on this week, we have... Uh, uh, Crossfire, UAP Crossfire, Thursday nights, every Thursday night. That's a two-hour along with Chris DiPerno, myself, uh, and Commander Cobra, usually. He's not going to be there this week. And also Don Ecker, who's filling in for him, though, is Chris Lambright. Chris Lambright wrote a great book about the Paul Benowitz case, and he's going to be talking about that. We're also going to be talking on that show about uh, Sean Kirkpatrick's AARO parting words uh, that's out there on, I think it's Scientific America, or I can't remember exactly the website that's on there. Uh, but we're going to be discussing that. And uh, uh, we'll just, uh, you, I'm not real thrilled with some of it, but uh, I understand some of what he said uh, makes some sense. But we'll, uh, we'll dissect that and talk about that again on Thursday night. Also, Thursday night, I'll be playing a little teaser of. Uh, a recording that I'm going to be doing earlier that day with Representative Tim Burchett. So uh, I'll have that full clip on uh, a week from today. I also have Dave Scott. He's going to be our guest next week. But uh, the full interview with Tim Burchett will be on, uh, will be posted next, a week from tonight, Tuesday. But I will put a little teaser in uh, this coming Thursday when we do the UAP crossfire. So check that out. You can only actually see that on KGR a radio uh, live or right here on this YouTube channel. Uh, so that's the way you can watch that particular show. So I am ready to bring in our guest. Welcome to the show, Joby. Hey, thanks for having me, Martin. Yes, uh, thanks for being on. And uh, you have a lot of uh, interesting theories that you kind of dive into. Uh, and how long have you been looking into say all the topics that was this kind of like a lifelong type of thing that you've been interested in these type of things? Well, I mean, I'm only 26, but, uh, ever since I graduated in 2020, I've been, you know, studying this very, uh, thoroughly and, you know, diving down this rabbit hole full time. Um, basically I'm an independent researcher. I have like many theories about essentially the evolution from single-celled organisms to civilization and the loops and hoops that we had to jump through and the lucky coincidences that essentially brought us here to this, you know, amazing civilization. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, a lot of times I do talk about this. Uh, I also do a show occasionally called the everything else show where I discuss all kinds of topics. And, um, I have talked a lot about my interest in this part about evolution and about, um, the first, spark of life, how all these things had to be lined up, uh, the chemicals, the, you know, it, it's, it seems like a miracle that that could happen. And, and, you know, some of the thoughts are, 
uh, possible, possibly uh, panspermia, you know, that maybe life is floating from other places and, you know, comes in on, say, a, a meteor or something like that. Uh, but the, the bottom line is it had to start somewhere. The first spark of life had to start somewhere. And I understand by listening to you talk, you have a theory about kind of how rare uh, life is. And, uh, and I'm wondering if that's the case. I know you, you talk about plate tectonics and how that played a, a role. The moon, I've always thought played a role in it. And I believe you do as well. But um, the, the thing that I, I have a feeling that life wants to be, wants to exist. You know, when you take and you look at places where life shouldn't be, it is, you know, like uh, in places where there's absolutely no light, there's no source of energy that we can think of. And yet there's life there. And then in these acid pools, there's life there, you know. And it, so I think life wants to find a way. Uh, but you have a you have a different idea about you think that life is more or less rare and and we may be just the exception. Yeah, so um, when you talk about panspermia and essentially the origin of life, um, so there's basically two two schools of thought, seemingly. Um, one is that somehow life uh, arose somewhere else, and then um, by um, traveling through space, it eventually crashed onto Earth, and then, um, you know, those were the first life forms, and then they, they started, you know, making copies of themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in my research... Um, I'm a strong proponent of abiogenesis, which is essentially the other side of the, the argument is that rather than um, non-living matter becoming matter somewhere else and then crashing onto earth, uh, the idea is that abiogenesis, the process of turning non-living matter into living matter occurred on earth. And um, essentially the, the mechanism that I propose uh, of how this happened was plate tectonics. Um, essentially the, the core component of of life existing is energy because we need energy to, um, you know, survive. And the question is, how did this life get energy before photosynthesis had existed? Because, you know, photosynthesis, you could say, is the solar panels of, of early life forms. And you don't just go from nothing to solar panels. You need a, a step in between to get energy and, um, basically a source of chemical energy. Um, and one amazing source of chemical energy that could, fuel abiogenesis is plate tectonics because essentially um, unlike all the other planets in our solar system which are just a one plate structure that is unmoving and solid just stationary um, we have plate tectonics where essentially uh, you could say that the crust is like a slow moving conveyor belt bringing um, elements from the uh, the core of our earth that have been exposed to heat and pressure and then they surface on um, on the surface of the planet. So essentially you have this free conveyor belt food machine that is constantly um, bringing free chemical energy for, you could say, abiotic systems that could use that chemical energy. So the question is, how did it actually eat the food before it was alive? Um, you could say that there it's possible that um, systems of chemical reactions lasted indefinitely because their ingredients kept getting replenished over and over. So, the, you know, the the chemical reaction kept on going and then it's slowly changing and mutating a little bit. And then eventually that mutation might gain the ability to drop a copy of itself or an egg. 
And then now, you know, that, that egg is going to drop an egg and that egg is just drop an egg and then boom, now there's life. So I think when you compare panspermia with abiogenesis, I always thought the idea of panspermia was a bit odd because basically what you're saying is that abiogenesis occurred somewhere else and then traveled through the cold, you know, you know, zero degree space and then interacted with our atmosphere. So it was really cold and then it was really hot and then it survived. So it seems less likely that panspermia um, happened and it seems much more likely that abiogenesis occurred on earth, especially given the fact that plate tectonics um, exists here, which is a, a crucial component of how these systems might've gotten life forms. <clears throat> I mean, uh, energy and sorry, remind me of your other question or, or your other point um, was kind of lost in well, thought. Well, it was panspermia and the first spark of life, the possibility of the first spark of life. But I, I did want to ask you a question on something you said. And are we sure that there are no other planets in our solar system with a plate system? Are we positive about that? And how do we know that? Do you know? Um, <clears throat> we're fairly sure, I believe. Um, I mean, you can just look at Mars and... And it's quite obvious because if there was a um, a plate tectonic structure, you would be able to just see it. Um, and then in the case of Venus, I guess is a little more hazy. Like it seems like the surface is a little messed up, but um, I think we would know our, our telescopes would be able to like determine whether um, a surface is moving because it's a completely different thing. <clears throat> so I, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're, we're, we're sure on that one. I know, uh, you know, like, Jupiter is a gas, a gas planet. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, they, they have talked about the possibility of life on, is it Europa? I believe, you know, because of the, uh, the orbiting and the expanding and contracting, uh, could cause some type of a thermal situation, you know, uh, but it's covered with ice. So it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting theory that there could be actually life underneath that. So we don't know. I mean, we, as far as we know, I heard you say this, we don't think that there's any life in our solar system, but we don't know, you know, we can't be certain of it. You're right. I mean, we can't actually be certain until we like fly over to Europa and look at the water. But yeah, from, from my, you know, it's like without, without any of the data, just looking on like the chemistry and the, the physics behind abiogenesis, if you make the assumption that plate tectonics is a, requirement, then we can deduce that there wouldn't be any life unless it's a planet with plate tectonics. Um, as far as Europa, like, I think the idea was that the underground oceans um, might have some mechanism of abiogenesis. Um, and, and what we do know is that uh, many of the current theories of abiogenesis revolve around um, hydrothermal vents, which are essentially underwater uh, vents of lots of very highly concentrated materials and the idea is that life could, you know, you know, the abiotic systems might evolve um, through these hydrothermal vents. However, in my research, I also found that hydrothermal vents are a result of plate tectonics. So I went back to the plate tectonics idea. So yeah, hmm. I mean, it, we might be able to, in fact, a way to disprove my theory would be able to find life on a planet without plate tectonics. But yeah, yeah that would be, yeah, then we'd, That'd be a major step, a major step for mankind just to find life in general. Um, yeah. And, you know, with, uh, I, I had a uh, uh, astrophysicist on 
Adam, I cannot remember his last name right now, but um, he was on, I don't know, a few months ago and basically said that he's um, in a program uh, that has is working with the James Webb Telescope that is trying to write papers on how to find techno -sig signatures out there, which I think is fascinating. And I think that's, you know, I think that's the way we're probably going to find something elsewhere myself only because, um, you know, these things of SETI, you know, looking for radio signals. Well, maybe radio signals were never used. Maybe it was something entirely different. I don't know. You know, it's better they're, look, they're looking than not looking at all. But um, I don't know if the radio signal, signals uh, were the uh, correct method of what, you know, we have no idea what we'd be looking for and if there was alien technology out there. And I don't know if it could be encompassed in signals. Might be a whole um, different technology. I have some thoughts about that. So um, I think when you're basically, you can essentially take our civilization and, and what occurred. And if you're looking for a another civilization, the assumption was would that be that that civilization would also um, create, you know, technology similar to, similar to ours. Um, and, you know, how would you detect such a thing? Well, I, I think there's like lots of ways to detect it. For example, like if you look at our civilization, we're very a, a young civilization, meaning if you fast forwarded like a thousand years into the future, you might see our civilization start, you know, becoming multiplanetary and even creating large mega structures like Dyson swarms. If you're familiar, it's basically a, yep. a bunch of solar panels around a star. Um, mm -hmm. They would essentially have the ability to create mega structures in space and start, you know, organizing all the matter in their sol solar system and then start going to the next solar system and the next solar system. So, you know, beyond just radio signals that you might expect if we were near another civilization, um, I think any other civilization would also um, have goals to become multiplanetary and become a, a vast, you know, civilization. So, you know, beyond just radio signals, you might also see megastructures and, you know, much more obvious things, but we still haven't seen any of those. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. techno signatures, my belief is that, you know, if, if there was a civilization, we would probably know because they would be creating, you know, gigantic structures in space that would be obvious. I know what, uh, there was a theory for a while that we did find a, a Dyson sphere out there, but it ended up, they think it might be more like dust or something like that. Uh, this was, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago. Did you follow that? Um, I'm not sure if I remember hearing about that, but yeah, I, a Dyson swarm, if you see one, you're probably going to see two or you're going to see three. Yeah. So if it was and I think they call that thing, a, it's like a type, I think they call it a type two, type two civilization. civilization. Yeah. When it's up that in that range. Sorry, Something give me like one that. second. The sun is in my eyes. Yeah, I see that. <laughs> Out in sunny California. Uh, it's Even dark it's where I am here, South Carolina. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's better. So, yeah, I mean, this is all all fascinating to me. And I, I also, um, what was your your thoughts on the Fermi paradox? I've always thought, well... You know, one of the things that was never accounted for is something is visiting us. You know, 
I don't know what it is. I can't say it's extraterrestrial, but uh, I, I know that something seems to be visiting us and there's certainly enough uh, evidence to that. But what was your thoughts on the Fermi paradox? I know it's it's pretty involved and I actually didn't see, uh, didn't hear your theory on that. Yeah, so if your viewers are unfamiliar, the Fermi paradox is essentially the idea of if there are you know billions of planets that are possibly habitable in the Milky Way galaxy alone, not to mention, you know, the 30 galaxies in our neighborhood and the billions of galaxies in the observable universe, it's a very large contradiction that we don't see techno signatures because the sheer, you know, trillions of, you know, quintillions that keep going up with the number. There's so many, the sheer volume of, you know, planets in our observable universe. If there was even a small, um, chance that life could arise, um, we would expect to see many, many techno signatures all over the, the galaxy. And yet we don't see any of these techno signatures. We don't see these gigantic structures. Um, we see none of this. And, you know, maybe like five years ago, we saw one that might've been a Dyson swarm, but it didn't seem to, to have enough evidence. So the, that's the, essentially the firm paradox is the contradiction between the sheer number and the lack of evidence. So, um, in my, theories like essentially this rabbit hole that I've been going down is essentially the the rare earth explanation for the Fermi paradox. The idea that civilization, the reason we don't see civilizations is because civilization is so rare because there were certain things in our history that just so happened to be like lucky coincidences that were very probabilistically slim to occur. And essentially what I did was I found all of these things that were very slim probabilities and I calculated like a possible probability um, of what they might have been. And this gave me the ability to um, get a generalized probability estimate of civilization in our universe. Um, so I could tell you like, if you want, it's kind of like spoilers. Yeah, yeah no, um, I'd like to hear it. Yeah. So um, in my estimate, civilization occurs less than one in 10 to the 40 star systems, but there are only at most 10 to the 30 star systems in our observable universe. So um, according to my research, I believe that the reason that we don't observe any civilizations in our observable universe is because um, civilization, naturally occurring civilization is just simply so rare. And if you want, I could talk about the, the exact events that were necessary for civilization to exist and were also an extremely low probability. Oh yeah, I mean that. Uh, I'm all about it. I'd like to hear because um, I, you know, I have looked into these type of things in the past, and it is really, you know, I mean, there's so many. Just, just the fact that ice floats is one of the things that if that didn't float, then we wouldn't be here. You know, I mean, there's Absolutely. all, you know, there's all kinds of things like that. Yeah. So, so let's hear um, all the lucky accidents. Cool, cool, cool. So, um, I'll start with the three. Um, really, really big ones. So the first one is Theia's collision, which is the creation event of Earth's moon. Um, essentially, uh, when we you know went to the, the the moon mission, the Apollo mission, we found something crazy. We we found that the the isotopes on the moon were identical to the isotopes on Earth, which would um, imply that they were essentially made of the same material, um, um, which essentially implies that. Uh, the moon formed was a result of a collision. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, this is essentially the reason why our moon is so extremely massive compared to 
uh, Earth, because if you look at any other moon of a planet, they're always going to be very like pebble-like compared to their host planet because um, that they had formed naturally when the solar system had formed. They weren't the result of a collision. So essentially what happened, um, I argue that this is essentially the reason why our planet became, ha became habitable in the first place is because this, this, planet, hit, this planet hits us, right? Um, according to the model I use, um, which is a, a of the scientist of, from UC Davis named Sarah Stewart, also working with NASA. Essentially, the reason why our moon's orbit angle is currently five degrees is explained in this model. So essentially what happened was first uh, Theia, the other planet, hits Earth at a 75 degree angle, and then all the debris forms the moon. And so we're starting at 75 degrees. And then um, the sun basically, and all of the solar system is on one disc because um, how solar system formed and angular momentum, all of the gases, when they coalesce into the sun, they spin around and become a disc. So the moon is being gravitally um, attracted downwards to this disc because it was an initially at 75 degree angle, right? So the gravity pulls it down to zero. But since the moon just so happened to be so massive, it drags our tilt, which was started at 75 degrees, down to 23 degrees. So, and then also because of our moon is so massive, um, it actually keeps our tilt at 23 degrees, preventing it from moving up or down. And that's, so there's a lot to break down here, but it's very crucial that our tilt does not change because, for example, we, we have studies that say that Mars's tilt had you know changed by upwards of 10 or 20 degrees over its million year lifetime. So the problem with that is if any life form had uh, adapted to a certain temperature range um, and then randomly that changed and the entire weather system got all uprooted and everything changed, that life form would probably just die out. So number one is stability. We have tides and we have um, <clears throat> a stable tilt. But the other thing um, the other thing is the question of where Earth got its water, because when the, the solar system first formed, uh, the solar wind essentially pushed all of the water towards Jupiter, because um, at those really high temperatures, um, when the sun the solar system first formed, anything that is a gas and not a liquid at those temperatures is just going to be shoved to the Jupiter and beyond. And that's why all the gas giants start at Jupiter, and then everything else is a gas giant. So... Earth didn't have any water because it was pushed, and we know this from, from doing simulations. So the question is, where did Earth get its water? Well, um, there are certain studies that say uh, Theia was an icy planet, and it essentially infused all this water and volatile elements that normally would have been pushed away into Earth's core when it crashed so that it didn't get blown away. And now we have oceans, and everyone knows that water is a crucial, crucial component of the existence of life, and we have these beautiful oceans. So that's two things. So number one, we have our, our axial tilt, our obliquity. Number two, we have our crucial elements. And then um, a third point um, that I make in my research is about the, the existence of plate tectonics, of why we don't see any plate tectonics on Mars or Venus or you know Mercury. Um, essentially, why is it this single plate structure? Because when the solar system forms, that's just what's going to happen. The crust is going to form it's going to harden into one crust and there's no reason that it would go into a higher energy state like plate tectonics because, you know, conservation of energy, it simply doesn't make sense that that would physically occur. However, if a gigantic planet crashes into you and breaks your 
crust and then um, the planet is, you know, a similar mass to Earth, I essentially argue that this collision is what created plate tectonics on, on Earth because what I think happened was the planet crashed, right? And this is going to create a lot of heat. So um, once it crashes, the entire crust is molten. So it's no longer hard at all. But there's also um, a bunch of mixing because there's a bunch of elements and the heavy elements are trying to go down and the light elements are trying to go up. But everything just got through and thrown into chaos because this ginormous planet hits us. So there's a bunch of mixing. But this is a really slow process because it's on a planet. But the crust hardening is like a, you know, not that slow process. Maybe happens in like a couple thousands of years. So when the crust hardens, but it's still mixing, it's going to lock into place. And and I think I propose that this is what created the permanent subduction zones where um, one area of crust is permanently being shoved under another. And then um, the other side of the crust is being replenished by a divergent boundary. And this created a permanent... Um, plate tectonic system on earth when normally it would just be a stationary plate. And essentially, um, as we know in my other theory about plate tectonics, it could have been uh, crucial for abiogenesis. And then there's also other um, extremely, extremely important benefits of plate tectonics, like the fact of recycling. If a life form on the surface dies and it just is a clump of useless matter that no one wants because it's like rotted or just, it's just useless. Eventually, in, in millions of years, that um, useless matter will be recycled into the earth. So basically, we have our own recycling machine because any trash will eventually go into a subduction zone and fall into earth's um, surface. So essentially, this collision, as far as we know, happened in the most perfect, miraculous way that we could even possibly conceive of. And as far as we know, if any you know minute detail was slightly different, um, we might have not been a habitable planet. And um, mm. when you're thinking about habitability and civilization, the, the evolution from single cell to civilization took 4.5 billion years. However, we also know that in a billion years or possibly less, maybe even half a billion years, um, the sun in its natural life cycle is expanding and gaining heat. Um, and in about a billion years, it'll start boiling the oceans and creating you know huge right. problems yeah. on earth. So mm. if we had evolved just 20% or just 10% slower, it's likely that the sun would have rendered our planet uninhabitable before civilization could have evolved. So mm. when you look at all these factors and you look at Thea's collision of how perfect it could have been, um, it's called what I, I call in my research, the 30% rule, or, you know, I just call it 30% rule. And it's basically, if you can prove any uh, thing in earth's history that increased our light, um, our evolution speed by 30% or more, we have to assume that that was necessary for civilization to exist in our universe, generally speaking, meaning generalizable to all civilizations because um, of the principle of mediocrity, uh, which essentially states if you if you pick a random thing, um, you're most likely to pick the most numerous category. So if we just assume our civilization is the most numerous type of civilization, um, it, it essentially implies that uh, the likelihood of our civilization is generalizable to all civilizations in the universe. So yeah, so that's just number one, Thea's collision, of um, which happened miraculously for all we know. So do you have any questions? I know I just explained like a yeah, lot of, um, stuff, yeah. Right. 
So, uh, well, Mars had water at one time. You know, it lost its uh, uh, magnetosphere, and yeah. that's probably one that. of the reasons that they lost their atmosphere and their water and all that. But, uh, you know, that's very important and crucial that we have the magnetosphere we have. Otherwise, we'd be, you know, we would have a radiation issue and all that. Uh, and we'd lose our water. We'd lose our atmosphere. We'd lose all that. But um, so how do you think that Mars, I mean, it's very good evidence that Mars had water as well. Do you think that was also part of a collision? I know there is a, there's a theory out there that we gained our water from, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm trying to think of uh, not an asteroid, but what are the ones, what are the ones that are ice that travel through? I just, I'm just losing the word. Comets, perhaps? Yeah, comets. Uh, that's uh, the theory that we have water on our planet uh, I've heard, you know, I mean, the past theories that it could be comets. I mean, actually, uh, that that would be a heck of a lot of comets, I would think, to collide with us to get as much water as we have here on Earth. But what do you think about Mars? How, how did they gain water in, at one time? Yeah, so um, any planet in, in the solar system is going to get some water because, just like you said, there's comets. There's a bunch of rocks out in the solar system that have a bunch of water. They're just basically ice ice balls with, you know, dirt and, and metals and stuff like that. So, um, I'm surely, uh, earth got some of its water, um, from these things like comets and stuff, but the vast amount of water is, is, you know, it's questionable of if we could really get that much water. And then, um, I, I like the point you made about Mars and its magnetosphere. So, um, the, the common understanding of, of why earth has a magnetic field is because the, the core the, the iron core is essentially moving really fast and it's like spinning around yeah. and stuff. And then um, the iron is basically overlapping in itself and, and spinning around and essentially creating a magnetic field. So the question is, well, why is our core spinning and why is Mars's core not spinning? And a great possible explanation of why our core is all spinning and stuff is because of this, yet again, Theia's collision. Um, of, of basically our, you know, it would, you know, violent mixing and spinning and everything. It's possible. It's, you know, entirely possible that, you know, that would have continued that spinning and created a permanent magnetic sphere. And there's even um, magnetic field. There's even research. Basically there's underground structures that we, we find in our core um, that people found with um, technology, like similar to LIDAR where they kind of um, shoot, like signals down and then and then they reflect and then we see um we can look at structures so we, we see remnants of theia of the planet in our core still today so the mixing kind of didn't fully even finish so yeah um, the magnetic sphere um so because mars didn't have one uh eventually the solar wind slowly but surely ticked off all the water molecules on its surface and that's why um there's evidence that Mars used to have water, but now it does not exist because there's no magnetic field. Um, getting back to um, just skipping around, just because I see a question in chat that um, is a good point. Um, so getting back to the megastructures, you know, maybe there's an evolutionary uh, that doesn't involve megastructures, which is, is possible. It's just a theory that if a, uh, if a civilization gets to a type two, that they're going to 
um, you know, basically have control of their their son, right? Isn't that what that's um, use the energy full out use the energy um, through these mega structures? I, I think believe. It, my what my interpretation of what he's saying is like perhaps a civilization would just not want to deal with all that and just just stay on their planet. And um, I guess it's possible um, yeah. that a civilization would would you know decide make that decision. Yeah. Well, and another thing about the techno signatures, I think we're we're in an early stage of of looking into that. You know, it's a possibility that we may find some. It's a big sky. Places to look are endless, and uh, I I'm really excited that you know with the technology growing uh, the way it is that we eventually may find another civilization or life out there, and. Statistically, you know, I know you talk about these numbers. I forget what you said, um, but that was some. That was a very big number. You said that ten to the forty uh, is, is yeah. Not, um, uh, in like, my paper. Uh, yeah, that's that's uh, quite a number. But when you have uh, these planets that they are are saying Earth-like planets, you know, I had an astrophysicist on a, a while back and. I believe she mentioned that there could be up to 40 billion um, within so many, I forget how many, um, I think she said there's a possibility um, in the, mm, I'm not sure what, what galaxy, how many galaxies she said, but maybe our known galaxies, there's a possibility of up to 40 billion Earth-like planets. You know, yeah, just no, okay. that, that sounds about right. There's probably yeah. 40 billion or more Earth-like planets in the Milky Way. And, and, and if that is a fact, um, so are you suggesting like, okay, if these are Earth-like planets, you know, maybe life could move there and exist there, but to start there would be extremely rare. Is that kind of what I'm, is that kind of what I'm hearing from you? Yeah. So, uh, well, the, the idea is that, um, there could certainly be life in the Milky Way. In fact, I think it's almost a certainty. Um, but the question is, will this life evolve from single-celled organisms to mammals um, who create civilization? So I guess now would be a good time to talk about other um, rare events besides Theia's collision. So, Oh, yes, go ahead. I'm sorry, I kind of interrupted the whole story there. Go ahead. Yeah. No, that's perfectly fine. I mean, it's, it's a lot to, to break down. But um, so an, one event... Um, the second most uh, amazing event besides Theia's collision would be the dinosaur extinction event. So um, quite miraculously, 60, you know, six-ish million years ago, um, a um, an extinction event wiped out all the dinosaurs and left mammals, us, alive. So um, during the, the 168 million year dinosaur rule, uh, mammals, um, which are social creatures, compared to dinosaurs, which are not social creatures, um, were at most the size of a beaver. So um, basically all the mammals were, the only reason they were able to survive during dinosaurs is because they were burrowing and probably just eating the, the leftovers or, you know, just scavenging and nocturnal scavengers. And then, um, so this would have um, occurred, you know, indefinitely unless the extinction event had wiped them out. And normally you would say if an extinction event is strong enough to destroy all the dinosaurs, chances are the mammals are going to die too. But that's not what happened, as we know. 
And um, when you when you have basically uh, land animals, uh, the first land animals are always going to lay eggs because fish always lay eggs. So uh, the first land animals are reptiles, and they they you know stepped on land and then they became gigantic dinosaurs. And then mammals are like the reptiles that were were not dominant and were too small and weak, so they evolved like completely different niche and a completely different pathway. Um, so normally, uh, dinosaurs are always, always, always going to be dominant over mammals because mammals are naturally smaller, um, for a couple reasons, including the fact that they have to give live birth and including the fact that, you know, they're naturally burrowing nocturnal scavengers. And then, um, dinosaurs, natural selection essentially treats dinosaurs on an individual basis, meaning, um, it doesn't matter, um, because dinosaurs don't create family units, um, natural selection is just going to pick the biggest, baddest, best fighter dinosaur who can protect its eggs the best. Because all you really need to do if you're a dinosaur is eat food and protect your eggs. But um, in comparison, mammals, the reason why mammals um, probably created civilization is because of live birth. Um, your parent is actually incentivized to care for you because um, when they're uh, vulnerable during pregnancy, natural selection is going to select um, the ones that have an even weaker offspring because that will make your pregnancy even faster. So you're vulnerable for a less period of time. In comparison, dinosaurs don't even need to be pregnant. They just lay the egg and walk away, maybe bury it a little bit. So um, this miraculous event kills all the dinosaurs who are naturally antisocial and allows us mammals who are collaborative to um, survive. And I was, you know, I was looking very deeply into like how exactly was this extinction event able to kill the dinosaurs while leaving mammals alive because if there was such a massive extinction event you would expect it to kill all the life on the planet not just the dinosaurs and leaving mammals alive so um essentially what occurred was there were three events that normally happen every billion years that all happened in a one million year time frame so that's a thousand times a thousand times a thousand it's pretty pretty dang unlikely so essentially there was the first thing that happened was there was an eruption not many people know this that there was an eruption in india the deccan traps and um, essentially, I think 500,000 years or something after that, there was the Chicxulub impact. And that's essentially what everyone knows about this um, impact um, that, that hit Earth. And then we have a bunch of evidence of, of this impact at that exact time. Um, what pe some people don't know about Chicxulub is that it just so happened to hit a sulfur deposit. So, you know, this impactor could have hit anywhere. It could have just hit some random desert. It could have hit... The, it could have splashed in the ocean, but no, instead it hits a sulfur deposit. And what happens is a bunch of sulfur is released into the atmosphere. And this is a global effect creating a global winter because the sulfur uh, reflects all of the sun's rays. And now all the plants are, are dead and it's freezing cold. And all the dinosaurs are like, um, they're there. The dinosaurs wanted to eat the herbivores and the herbivores wanted to eat the plants, but all the plants are dead. So basically the, the bottom of the food chain died and then everything else died. And now the dinosaurs can't do anything, but the rats, um, they just were eating insects and they were eating all the dead dinosaurs. So basically they had a good time. And then, so that, that's event number one and number two. Event number three was another impactor. Um, the reason no one knows about this other impactor that was actually larger than um, Chicxulub impact by like an order of magnitude, um, was the, the, the crater 
is kind of unclear because it's uh, in the sh the 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 structure crater uh, is kind of in the shallows next to India, so it's it's kind of unclear and disputed whether such thing is a crater. However, it does have a timestamp um, of of essentially this structure as as old as essentially the same period of Chicxulub. It happened maybe five hundred or a million, couple million years after Chicxulub impact. So. Um, this impact was, if this crater is indeed um, legit, uh, it would suggest that this is the largest impact that ever occurred on Earth. Um, so we're talking about three events that are extremely, extremely rare, all just so happening in, in like a one million year time frame. So the question is, is it a coincidence that all of these things happened, you know, these unlikely occurrences all happened within this small time frame, or is it perhaps the other way around where um, this was actually necessary to happen because imagine if there's a couple stragglers, a couple dinosaurs that don't die. Maybe they were, you know, some, you know, weird dinosaurs with a weird niche where they're kind of like, I don't know, hiding in a cave or doing this or doing that. Or maybe um, the the widespread global winter or the this didn't kill just one family of dinosaurs. When all the, you know, the dust settles and the, the global winter ends, that dinosaur is going to have a bunch of babies and they're going to be dominant on the planet yet again. So it's really, really miraculous if you consider that every single dinosaur, without exception, died. And then the mammals, the rats were able to survive. And, you know, the social creatures were able to triumph when normally they're way too tiny. <laughs> right. So Just on this thought before we move on, uh, a friend of mine, he's been on the show a number of times. Mark D'Antonio is an astronomer. And he he was uh, he had a theory that the dinosaurs were getting more intelligent. Their brains were getting bigger, you know, and they, they, they were around a long time. And I don't know where, you know, you know, that's not his specialty or anything like that, you know, but, uh, but he had a theory that, uh, you know, that of course, if they didn't, he totally agreeing on the topic of if they were not wiped out, you know, we wouldn't be here, but, he thought that eventually they may become more intelligent wherever that led them. You're right. They, you know, most likely were not, uh, they were not a social or they didn't have a family union unit or anything like that. So uh, that typically would, you would think they wouldn't develop into any type of society in any type of way, or they didn't have opposing thumbs either. <laughs> so, you know, they, what they, they could never, you know, they like the dolphins very smart, but, you know, the dolphin is not going to be writing computer code, you know, that type of thing. But yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment, definitely, that I considered um, where or, or the question of um, is dinosaur civilization possible? Um, because, well, um, we can look at it from a couple angles. Oh, I didn't see that comment. Oops. I'm sorry. Yeah. This is a comment. I, uh, yeah, the avian dinosaurs. And that's kind of a theory, um, you know, going off. Uh, uh, topic a little bit, but that's kind of a theory that birds uh, evolved from the dinosaur. Uh, you know, that is a theory I've heard. I don't know. No, no, it's it's true that the the birds um, evolved from dinosaurs, but but the thing is, um, birds are are not preventing mammals from growing larger because they're just existing in in trees and nests. So the main problem with the dinosaurs is, is that they were um, dominant, the dominant land animals, and they were oh, preventing yes. mm -hmm. mammals from growing larger than beavers. Um, 
I see. Sorry. So, um, what? I, oh, yeah. What I was talking about is the 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 idea that a dinosaur civilization could exist. Um, we can essentially look at it from a, a couple angles. Um, the first one is the the principle of mediocrity, which I I briefly mentioned, is the the essentially of are we an ordinary civilization? Now, uh, if dinosaur civilization was possible, we would expect that to be far more likely and ordinary than a mammal civilization because. As I said, um, the first fish that go on the land will lay eggs, and then the land animals that lay eggs will just naturally grow into dinosaurs because natural selection will favor the big and baddest dinosaur that can protect its eggs the best. So by the principle of medi mediocrity, um, it would say if dinosaur civilization is possible, we would expect to be a, a dinosaur civilization or a civilization that lays eggs. Um, because the alternative, which is us, is far less likely because we just look to our history and realize that um, the mammal domination, uh, mammal dominance on the ecosystem was a like one in trillion bare minimum um, event. Um, so, the, so number one is the the principle of mediocrity, and number two is the the whole idea of the incentives. If if you the the dinosaurs were simply not incentivized to collaborate, which is really unfortunate. So, like even if they did create a civilization it would probably be horrible like just wars all the time because there's just no reason for them to collaborate because their only incentive is to protect their eggs hmm interesting yeah yeah and then some people talk about um this this bird idea of of why can't the birds create a civilization and um this was also a very question that i considered and and thought out for a, a while um of the the idea that a, a bird could because even though the birds lay eggs, they, they still have, um, you kind of say like a, a very hazy family unit. I mean, you could look, um, at things like penguins or you could look at like, um, the kind of the, the, the egg nest is, is sort of a incentive structure of, you know, both birds are protecting one nest and imagine if the mm -hmm. birds had like created one big nest and there was like a family of birds and they're like, Oh, let's all protect this one nest. What if those birds created a civilization? And um, I considered this, and um, there's a couple of problems with bird civilization. Is like number one is opposable thumbs, which you mentioned of hands, um, tools. the The question is: Is there ever going to arise a, a situation where the birds are pressured to evolve hands and tools? And um, that that one's a hard thing to, you know, imagine. Of, of how the the birds would ever figure out tools and um yeah so so it, it, that's a hard one and and also the the land whenever there's birds there's probably going to be land animals and um the land animals are going to naturally get larger but the birds need to stay fairly nimble um nimble and light lightweight to be able to fly so there's a couple problems right. with, with bird civilization yeah and so that's event uh, number one and number two. <laughs> yeah. And um, and but there were many there were many events, right? I mean that all made right. life yeah, I was just talking about like, the big ones. So uh, yeah. the third mm -hmm. big one that I like to talk about is the the evolution from uh, fish to uh, tetrapods or, or animals with legs that are on land. So if fish. Um, if, if fish becoming if fish walking on land, if that was just a natural thing that always happened um, to fish in the universe and it was possible, 
um, we would probably see a gradual change of, you know, fish gaining legs and, <clears throat> pardon me, um, gaining legs and, and walking on land. But when we look at the, the fossil record, not only was it very, very sparse at this period, because it was likely just one or two families of fish um, undergoing this transition, um, it was actually, rather than a gradual change, it was like um, something was happening and then boom, extinction event. And then there's a, we see a dramatic difference. And then there was boom, another extinction event where we see um, a dramatic difference. So these are, are called the, the Endivonian extinction events. Essentially, there was two uh, periods where um, there was very, very heavy levels of ocean anoxia, where essentially all of the oxygen was, was pulled out from the, the ocean. And essentially, uh, this could have occurred in two different um, ways. The, the first one, um, scientists argue that the first one was likely caused by uh, underwater volcanism. So essentially, if there was a... Oh, sorry, I, I read that. Oh, oh I see. I oh, no, that, that's to... That, I'm sorry, that was to KGRA radio. Sorry. That oh, wasn't to you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what I was saying is, um, number one is if there was a volcanism event, like a eruption underwater, basically what would happen is this magma would surface and then it would um, chemically naturally bind with the oxygen in the water. And if the eruption was big enough, it would essentially steal all the oxygen from the water. And then the second hmm. um, possible way that ocean anoxia could occur is uh, a supernova. If um, there was a bunch of rays from a supernova, that would also likely um, create ocean anoxia. Um, the mechanism is, is complicated, but... So essentially we have ocean anoxia during this period, um, this transition period. So the question is, um, why would ocean anoxia essentially create this transition um, artificially? Um, essentially there was this lungfish that we found in the fossil record um, that kind of had fins and um, named Tiktaalik. And then suddenly there's there's no oxygen in the, in the ocean. So now this lungfish doesn't want to use its gills anymore because there's like no oxygen. So it has to use its lungs. So it's like basically putting its head, it's waddling around in the shallows and it's putting its head above water so it can breathe the air because <clears throat> there's no wow. more oxygen. And this will naturally, if it keeps doing this, naturally it'll get more and more effective at walled waddling. And then natural selection will select the, the best waddlers. And that will mean selecting more effective limbs for walking and slowly, but surely over millions of years, um, it, it gained legs <clears throat> and, and essentially this happened twice. Um, this o period of ocean anoxia and both times, you know, there were big incentives for this thing to keep waddling. And then also like the unlikelihood of this event is, you know, this isn't a normal thing that happens every day. It's not every day that suddenly all the fish die because there's no oxygen in, in the water. This was a two mm. basically catastrophic events. Um, and the first one, which was caused by volcanism, you know, and then the second one, um, if we assume like I did, there is a research paper that I cite in my paper that basically, um, puts all the pieces, the puzzle pieces together and formulates the argument that the second event, because there was two, um, could have very well, um, occurred, um, of a supernova about like, I don't know what it was like 10,000 or something light years away or something like that. Um, this um, this is a basically a very interesting idea because not only would it create ocean anoxia, but um, uh, these essentially rays, these radiation, 
could have potentially artificially sped up the transition because when you create a bunch of mutations in, in DNA, um, those mutations are essentially passed on to the offspring. So if, mm -hmm. if this, this would essentially have the effect of creating more variants in offspring, um, more mutations, and then this would, this could possibly speed up the transition if there's more variants, because there's more, um, variances of possible leg variations of how the legs, um, started evolving and this could have sped up this evolution. So basically we, we, there was not a gradual transition. There was a, a lucky transition that just so happened to occur because of these, you know, lucky events, just like the dinosaur extinction event where these things didn't necessarily need to happen, but they did. And then because we're a civilization, because of the 30% rule and the principle of mediocrity, well, you can't look at these events and say, that's just a random coincidence. You have to say those events were probably necessary for the existence of civilization because back to the 30% rule, if those event didn't happen, we might've evolved 30% slower and then, you know, civilization doesn't exist. Okay. So I'm going to say goodbye to KGRA radio. Again, we'll be back with uh, uh, Dave Scott next week and Tim Burchett. So, uh, so we'll just continue on a little bit. Um, if that's okay with you, yeah, I'd like to, yeah. Uh, we didn't really talk much about, I know we're still talking about how life got here. And I think that's really fascinating, but one of, uh, the things, uh, I thought we could kind of close with is your thoughts on UFOs. This is UFO show. <laughs> so, uh, and a lot of people come here just for that. And, uh, I know that you, a couple of things, I, I know you feel as though, and a lot of people I've talked to have that same feeling, like the, the space is just so vast. I understand that. Um, it's so, so vast, even to the nearest star, you know, over four light years away. Uh, and you, it's unimaginable, the distances and the travel. And the things I have said to other Oh, maybe skeptics of that whole thing were, were might be visited by, uh, you know, other beings or, uh, you know, from elsewhere is, uh, you know, perhaps there's something in physics that we don't, we have not discovered yet that, that exists for some type of travel that we're unaware of. You know, there's all these, you know, the space time, folding space time and all that, all these theories that maybe there's, uh, these uh, uh, wormholes or whatever, you know, uh, and I'm not saying for sure that I know where all these things are coming from. I never say that I, I know that they're extraterrestrial. I think it's a possibility. Um, it's a possibility of, of uh, you know, the things that come up a lot are in interdimensional. It seems to be coming up more and more at this point. Um, non-human that's what you hear you know that's another term you hear a lot a non-human intelligence says that type of thing uh interdimensional answers a lot of things that you know people mention uh, i have a clip up on uh, youtube under shorts where someone uh francis chiramuda from the ariel school incident that happened in 1994 he talks about these beings that he saw come out of this craft and they kind of blink and kind of show up in front of itself. You know, it was very hard for him to describe how this thing was moving, like blinking in and out, you know, that type of thing. So in that in that case, 
um, you know, the interdimensional thing could make sense. But um, so I understand that you 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 realize that there people are seeing something. And so what are your thoughts in general about the UFOs? Yeah, yeah. So um, when I think of the UFO sightings, um, when I think of just like realistically and probabilistically, I think of, of two things. I think of like when the Pentagon is releasing all this stuff, I think that um, it's unclear what their motive is. And it's possible that they're simply creating some sort of distraction for the public to distract them off of a, a more important thing that they don't want you to research. And, and who really knows what all these um, motives are. And then when you see the, but then when you look at the other perspective of the sheer number of sightings of, you know, all of these people, you know, saying that they are seeing these things. And then there's videos too. Um, when I think of the videos, I think that it's a high probability that some of these videos are created with software. And um, it's hard to say when you just see footage, um, even if it comes from like it's footage from the Pentagon, when you don't know the Pentagon's motives, you can't actually verify that that footage is legit. And then the third thing is, is it could simply just be an aircraft by another nation that doesn't look like a plane or a helicopter. And it just, it's, it's hard to say what it is because it's some sort of experimental technology. I mean, our technological advancement has been unprecedented in the last hundred years. And it's very well possible that there are fi flying craft that look like UFOs that are physically possible to create with our technology. And some other nation made that, or even it was made in the US and someone made that and flew it around. And like, it looks like a UFO. Um, <clears throat> now, the third idea, this interdimensional thing. Um, yeah, I think that would be the most logical conclusion if you're saying it is non-human from, if you're, you're talking about extraterrestrial non-human intelligence, the interdimensional thing would make the most sense because when you um, look at the distances and and now that I've looked at my research, um, my, my findings that the, the civil, a naturally occurring civilization occurs less than one in 10 to the 40 star systems. Um, even if you were able to speed, travel at the speed of light, um, we wouldn't be able to see uh, any aliens. That's assuming that they would even travel to us. Um, if, you know, uh, if we're talking about traveling at the speed of light. So when you, when you, uh, open the possibility of wormholes of interdimensional um, space travel of physics that we, we don't know. Um, that would be the only realistic way that you could travel faster than light uh, is through some sort of wormhole, which um, Einsteinian uh, Einsteinian equations does open the possibility of wormholes. However, um, through my research and people I've heard of talked to, they say that um, going through a wormhole will probably destroy anything that goes through it in all likelihood, or it will just collapse the wormhole. But, you know, if you were able to some advanced civilization, I mean, we're such a early civilization, it's hard to say what technology will do down the line of our um, civilization system or a singularity system, what I kind of reference in my research um, of an ever-growing intelligence that is evolving exponentially, eventually you know, before it plateaus, that might, that s system might be able to invent some sort of technology that can, uh, for all we know, 
but you know, as as far as I'm concerned, it seems physically impossible to travel faster than light. It would break causality. But you know, when you're talking about interdimensional, it's hard to say we we don't have enough knowledge to to make the the you know certain conclusion. So if, if it is indeed extraterrestrial, non-human, I would say interdimensional would be the the possibility that I would look to. Well, the the one the argument of that I would have uh, would be for one thing, the, what these people are seeing. Um, it's not like they're just seeing them now. You know, they have. Uh, they call the modern UFO age, but you take back in 1952 when they're on radar, they have an object going, you know, 10,000 miles an hour. Uh, you know, those we're, we're talking decades, uh, many decades ago that these things were seen um, by many witnesses uh, doing extraordinary feats, turning instantly, right angle turns, things like that, very unusual movements. Uh, high speeds. So there's a lot to consider when we think it's all our technology. Maybe some of it, I, I agree that some of it that we can be seeing, uh, maybe our technology or an adversary's possibly. But, and also, I'm sure the government loves to have people believe if they're testing something that it's a UFO instead of a secret military, uh, you know, uh, whatever craft that they created, that type of thing. Uh, but when it comes to the films that the Pentagon is saying that they don't have an explanation for the gimbal, uh, the go fastest questionable in my uh, mind, but the uh, Tic Tac video, those two, at least uh, when they're saying there's something that uh, they cannot explain. Um, and it's definitely through a FLIR uh, situation. I know a friend of mine's a pilot and who's uh, looked into that deeply. And these videos are from, of the FLR camera on uh, on an F-16 or 18 Hornet or whatever it is. Um, so we know those are military videos. And are you basically stating that you think those videos could be faked? Um, I mean, it's certainly possible to fake the videos. Uh, I wouldn't know, um, you know, why they would want to do such a thing. Exactly. Um, I mean, they would have to have a, you talk about distraction, you know, I mean, it's caused them more problems to have those videos out videos out there than I can imagine that they'd ever want to be distracted from. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a mystery, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. You have some very interesting theories, and I have a feeling you could talk for quite a while, too, on all these different things. So... Uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah. And if, if we're, are we uh, ending here? Yes. We're, yeah. We're all, we're, we're done for the show and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And uh, I really do appreciate you being on the show. And and one last thing. Um, could yeah. I just say uh, if anyone is more interested in, in the other things I have to say, um, I did talk a lot, but there's, there is more. Um, so I would encourage any uh, listener uh, if you're curious to check out my YouTube channel, Plan A Discovery, um, you could find it by just typing in youtube.com slash at Plan A Discovery, no spaces, or simply search in your search bar, Plan Space A Space, dis space Discovery, and uh, you should be be able to see more of my theories if you're interested. I'll make so it even easier. 
Yes, I'll make it easier. I'll, I will link that in uh, down below the text in YouTube and also uh, in the show notes for the audio podcast. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Martin. Great talking with you. All right. Yeah. yeah. Good night. All right, everyone. So don't forget next week, we'll be back with Dave Scott and also Tim Burchett. I'm going to be talking to him on Thursday. Look for us uh, at the uh, UAP Crossfire, 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. And that's Eastern time. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky.